1536, there were two Anne Boleyns in the Tower of London. One was a queen who helped to inspire the English Reformation and stood accused of treason. The other was the aunt whose testimony may have helped to convict her. Find out who the other Anne Boleyn was in this week's episode of Footnoting History. Hi, and welcome to Footnoting History. I'm your host, Kristen. And today we will be visiting the always dramatic and ever-entertaining court of the Tudors, the family that ruled England from 1485 to 1603, beginning with Henry VII and ending with his granddaughter, Elizabeth I. The Tudors are perhaps best well-known for the reign of Henry VIII, the king who broke with the Catholic Church and married a string of six women. He did some other stuff too, between 1509 and 1547 when he reigned, But those are the highlights that history best remembers him for. It's Henry's second wife who is either credited or blamed, depending on your perspective, for the break with the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church, then as now, did not allow for divorce, which was why Henry originally tried to convince the Pope to let him out of marriage number one and grant him an annulment, or a decision that looked back on the beginning of the marriage and determined that it had never been valid in the first place. Henry maybe didn't expect to come up against any real friction with his request. He was pretty used to getting what he wanted, but he had also asked the Pope for a special favor years before when he wanted to marry Catherine of Aragon, a Spanish princess who was his brother's widow. This made Catherine technically off-limits, but Henry was convincing, and the Pope granted him a special dispensation, or an exception to the rule. Henry and Catherine were married in 1509 and were, by many reports, pretty happy for 16 years, but for the fact that they had only one living child, a daughter named Mary Tudor. Historians do disagree about when exactly Henry decided to set aside his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, but around 1525, he became obsessed with one of her ladies-in-waiting, Anne Boleyn, and she became either the excuse or the impetus behind Henry parting ways with Rome in establishing the Reformed Church of England. Things ultimately did not end well for this Anne Boleyn. In 1536, she found herself the unfortunate guest of honor at a fancy execution by sword in the Tower of London. She was accused of adultery with multiple men, incest with her brother, and plotting the death of the king. You know, normal stuff. There is also good reason to believe that not having a son and getting on some important court figure's bad sides should also be included in that list, even if neither were part of the official indictment. Anne Boleyn's case was extraordinary at the time. Never before had a Queen of England faced the death penalty, and never before had one been accused and convicted of such outrageous charges. This Anne Boleyn was a legend in her own time, but there was another Anne Boleyn who was caught up in all this matrimonial and religious turmoil, and she played a crucial role in the unfolding drama of the doomed queen. This Anne Boleyn was Queen Anne Boleyn's paternal aunt. She was the younger sister of Sir Thomas Boleyn, who was the Queen's father, and she was born in the Boleyn family home of Blickling Hall in Norfolk, sometime around 1483, making her about 50 years old when her niece became Queen in 1533. Blickling Hall, if you were to visit it today, or if you were to visit the Footnoting History website for this episode, looks much like it did when it was renovated in 1616, and so not so very much like it did in the later 15th century. The Bolins bought the estate in 1452 from a man named Sir John Fastolf, and both Anne Boleyns were born in the 15th century brick manor house that once occupied the site, 
Not much is known about her early life at Blickling, but in 1503, Lady Anne married Sir John Shelton, making her Lady Anne Shelton. In preparation for her career as an upper-class tutor wife, Lady Shelton would have been educated in matters considered appropriate to her gender and necessary to the running of a large household. Things like managing servants and ordering proper provisions, and just generally making her husband's life as comfortable as possible. This meant that Lady Anne had to be able to both read and write. We do know that Lady Anne was literate, making her exceptional amongst the Tudor population in general, but rather conventional for a woman of her social class. Her husband, Sir John, was the sheriff of both Norfolk and Suffolk, which are counties in East Anglia. Sheriffs were justices of the peace, who were in charge of collecting revenue, presiding over sheriff courts, and for proclaiming royal statutes and delivering royal writs. They were officers of the king, who had to be reappointed every now and again. But by the later 1400s, they were outsourcing a lot of the actual work. They didn't earn a formal salary. They were supposed to be rich enough not to need it, and so not to be tempted to skim off the top of the money they were in charge of collecting. But there were still plenty of opportunities to benefit. Sir John was evidently good enough at his job, that he was rewarded by being made a Knight of the Bath at Henry VIII's coronation in 1509. In 1509, Henry was still enamored with the Spanish princess, and Lady Shelton had only eight years before, in 1501, become a likely namesake for her brand new niece, the daughter of her brother Thomas, a little girl also named Anne. Sir and Lady Shelton would have six children together, beginning around 1503 with their son John. In 1528, the couple sat for the famous painter Hans Holbein. There is something of a gap in detail about our knowledge about Lady Shelton's life between 1503 when she married Sir John and when she shows up at the Tudor court. But in 1533, at the influence of either her niece, who was then the queen, or her brother, who was a court favorite because her niece was queen, the Sheltons were put in charge of Mary Tudor's household at Hatfield House. This was a plum job, depending on how you looked at it because Princess Mary had recently been demoted. When her mother's marriage was declared invalid in 1533, she was reclassified as a bastard, and her baby sister Elizabeth, Queen Anne's daughter, took her place in the succession. Mary would not recognize her father's marriage to Queen Anne, and as a result was on bad terms with them both. She insisted, loudly and often, that she was still the true princess, and her mother was her father's true wife and she did not make the Shelton's job very easy. And maybe she shouldn't have. Many reports from the time describe Mary having to wait on her little sister like a servant, and generally just being treated poorly when she was once doted upon. It was Lady Shelton who was specifically tasked with putting Mary in line, and the means were often brusque, at best. Lady Shelton was told by her niece, the Queen, to give Mary, quote, a good banging on the ears, like the cursed bastard she was, end quote. And when Lady Shelton treated the former princess with, quote, too much respect and kindness, end quote, Queen Anne's brother, Lord Rochford, and Lady Shelton's brother, Sir Thomas, scolded her for it. Lady Shelton apparently responded that even if Mary were a bastard, she still deserved to be treated with respect and kindness. Thomas Bullen and his son, and King Henry, disagreed. Details about what too much respect and kindness looked like are not included, but Lady Shelton did step it up a notch by locking Mary in her room and nailing the window shut when visitors came over. This definitely doesn't make Lady Shelton look good, 
but some historians think she was just doing the girl a hard favor. In 1534, it was punishable by death not to recognize Henry and Anne's marriage, and Henry had taken to calling his eldest daughter, quote, his worst enemy, end quote. Lady Shelton reportedly cried when she thought about the real trouble Mary could be in if she failed to keep her royal charge in line. Lady Shelton might also have worried for herself and for her family. Henry's temper was, even in 1534, notorious. Even so, it is hard to massage good intentions into the reports that Lady Shelton physically shook Mary. And when Mary fell sick in 1535, that she told her she hoped she'd die. There is some suspicion that Lady Shelton hoped Mary would die a little too much. So much so that she poisoned her. When Mary first became ill, Lady Shelton hired an apothecary, a sort of pre-modern pharmacist, to come and treat her. This wasn't unusual. However, Mary claimed that the pills Lady Shelton's apothecary gave her made her even sicker, and both she and her longtime supporter, Imperial Ambassador Eustace Chapways, claimed that it was deliberate. Lady Shelton never admitted to any such thing, and Mary saw her alleged actions as an extension of her evil stepmother, Queen Anne who Mary had no doubt wanted her dead. There were a few times that Queen Anne made overtures of peace to Mary, one of which directly involved Lady Shelton. Soon after Catherine of Aragon died in 1536, Lady Shelton sent Mary a message that if only Mary would obey the king by recognizing Anne as his queen, Mary would, quote, find Anne a second mother, end quote. This did not go over well with the grieving and angry Mary Tudor, who said that she would, quote, obey her father as far as honor and conscience allowed, end quote, which was a pretty sick Tudor burn, the implication of which was that her honor and conscience would not allow her to recognize her father's second wife. Queen Anne responded by writing a letter to Lady Shelton that was left deliberately for Mary to find. Queen Anne told Mary, by way of Lady Shelton, that all efforts to be nice to Mary were off. She was fed up, the king was fed up, and Mary was on her own. Good luck with that, was the gist of the message. Mary read the letter, copied it, and replaced it, and took the original one to her ally, Eustace Chapways. At this point, Queen Anne was pregnant, and had things worked out, she would have given birth to a son who would have unquestionably replaced both Mary and Elizabeth in the succession. As the mother to the long-awaited male heir, Queen Anne's position would have been untouchable. As it turned out, she was not. Lady Shelton seemed to sense this and started to shift her allegiance more strongly in Mary's direction. There's no word as to what exactly her husband Sir John was doing all this time, but Lady Shelton started ignoring the Queen's orders and doing Mary forbidden favors, like arranging for one of Chapway's servants to visit Mary, while she, Lady Shelton, chaperoned. Henry was not pleased with his queen by the spring of 1536, but it is a matter of some debate how displeased he was, and whether he was behind the investigation which led to the arrest of Queen Anne and her alleged stable of lovers. But when Henry took Lady Shelton's daughter and Queen Anne's cousin as a mistress in 1535, it was just business as usual for him. He had mistresses when he was married to Catherine, and he acted just the same when he was married to Anne. Mary Shelton, also sometimes called Madge, didn't last long in the king's affections, but was rumored to be a contender for queen when the position was once again vacant in 1537, after the death of Henry's third wife, Jane Seymour. 
it was probably lucky for Madge that that one didn't work out again. In 1535, Queen Anne maybe brought her young cousin to Henry's attention, perhaps thinking that Madge would at least be in her corner. But the affair wasn't long. Henry's attention continued to rove, and Queen Anne couldn't swallow her jealousy, even if Madge were her cousin. When the dust settled, Madge was shifted over to Sir Henry Norris, and the two became engaged. It was a conversation with Sir Henry Norris and about Madge Shelton that ignited a series of events that would culminate with both Anne Boleyns in the Tower of London. Norris and Madge were engaged, but apparently Norris was dragging his feet. Queen Anne, maybe playing the game of courtly love too hard and taking the flirtation it required a bit too far, called Norris over to her one afternoon and poked him about his long engagement. She said that the reason he hesitated in marrying Madge was because he really had feelings for her. You look for dead men's shoes, she reportedly said. For if aught should come to the king but good, you would look to have me. Tudor translation, you are hoping the king will die so that you can marry me. These turned out to be fatal words for both Queen Anne and Sir Henry Norris. Lady Shelton's daughter Madge was also linked to another of Queen Anne's alleged lovers, Sir Francis Weston. In another conversation that turned out in retrospect to be pretty stupid, Queen Anne accused Weston of coming to her apartments to flirt with her cousin. He replied that the woman he loved was neither Madge nor his wife, and that he came not to see Madge, but rather the queen herself. Lady Anne Shelton perhaps watched all of this and did not much care for it. But in any event, the rumor of the conversation was well known at court. Lady Shelton also had a son named John who was married to a woman named Marjorie Parker. Marjorie Parker was a sister of Jane Parker, Lady Rochfort. Jane was married to Queen Anne's brother and Lady Shelton's nephew, George, Lord Rochfort. I know. So Lady Shelton's son, John, was married to a woman who was sisters with a woman married to her nephew. This is potentially really important to the story because George, Lord Rochfort, was accused by his wife, a woman who was Lady Shelton's in-law, of incest with Queen Anne. Almost all historians think that there was nothing to this charge of incest. It was a slam dunk for the prosecution, something so taboo and offensive that of course they'd get a conviction. But we really don't know how many people at the time believed that it was true. And we do not know what Lady Shelton thought of it personally. The accusation alone may well have been enough to rouse a sense of family outrage. Whatever it was, whether it was her niece falling out of favor, the treatment of her daughter, her son's connection to the Parker family, or all of these things, Lady Shelton was involved in the events leading up to her niece's conviction and eventual execution. We don't know a whole lot about the initial investigations conducted by Thomas Cromwell in April of 1536. Only that the first accusers were a woman named Elizabeth Brown, who was the Countess of Worcester, someone else named Nan Cobham, who has not been positively identified, and, quote, one maid more, end quote, who never gets named at all. All were close to the queen and her court. As Cromwell continued to build his case, he used spies, because every good tutor used spies, to find out what was being said and done in the queen's apartments. If Lady Shelton was not directly involved at this stage, it's safe to say she was probably at least approached, or knew someone who was involved. By the time things were wrapping up at the end of April, Many other witnesses were questioned. It was enough to arrest five men, including Queen Anne's brother, 
and Queen Anne herself. On the afternoon of May 2nd, 1536, Queen Anne Boleyn was arrested in her apartments at Greenwich Palace and taken by barge to the Tower, which was about six miles away on the River Thames. At the time, she was not allowed to change her clothes or pack a bag, and none of the ladies serving in her household were allowed to accompany her. Historians now believe that when Anne arrived at the Tower, she entered through what was known as the Court Gate at the Byward Tower, not the famous water steps of the so-called Traitor's Gate. Sorry to all those who have taken a Tower of London tour and were told otherwise, but if you did take a Tower of London tour, you went in the same way that Queen Anne did, if that makes you feel at all better. When Anne got there, she was greeted by the constable of the Tower, Sir William Kingston, and he took her not to a dungeon to the Queen's great relief, but to the royal apartments that were renovated for her coronation just a few years before. Waiting for Queen Anne in those royal apartments was a crew of women who were supposed to take care of her during her imprisonment, one of whom was Lady Shelton. They were joined by a few others who were probably not very sympathetic to the Queen's situation, including the wife of the Tower Constable, Lady Mary Kingston, who had served in Catherine of Aragon's court, and who was supposed to report back to her husband everything that went on during the Queen's dismal, albeit swanky, imprisonment. Surviving sources describe a woman named Margaret de Moke Coffin, yes, Coffin, who was married to one of Henry's court favorites, being specifically tasked to get the Queen to talk about that problematic conversation with Henry Norris about dead men's shoes. Coffin also got the Queen to talk about the conversation with Weston about Mad Shelton. There was probably a lot more that Queen Anne said that was relayed through her female servants in the Tower. Only those who were deemed to be cooperative got the job in the first place. Historians are rather united in believing that all of these women were involved in spying on the Queen. Cromwell was still working on building an ironclad case, and no chances were being taken. In a letter to Cromwell dated around May 7th, Sir Kingston relayed that Queen Anne complained about these unsympathetic women. She said she thought the king was doing her a great unkindness by surrounding her with, quote, such as I never loved, end quote. If, in 1533, Queen Anne considered her aunt Lady Shelton, a friend she could trust to deal with a foe like the Princess Mary, she no longer felt that way in 1536. On May 15th, Queen Anne was tried in the Tower of London, in a building called the King's Hall. Twenty-seven peers of the realm, including her old love interest Henry Percy, sat in judgment, and her uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, presided. When Queen Anne was brought into the courtroom, she was accompanied by, quote, her young ladies, end quote, who are not named, as well as Lady Kingston and the wife of her younger uncle, Elizabeth Wood, Lady Boleyn. The Queen didn't have a defense lawyer, and there were no witnesses called. That wasn't how cases of treason in Tudor England worked. The case proceeded with the Attorney General laying out all of the accusations and evidence. And I wish I could tell you what exactly that was. We don't know all the details of the evidence presented. The witness depositions and the statements of most of the men accused with the Queen have not survived. Some historians believe that the evidence was suppressed. Some think it never existed at all. Others think that Tudor England was only just starting to keep records like this, and history can be an arbitrary conservator of documents under the best of circumstances. It is highly possible that Lady Shelton gave testimony to Thomas Cromwell at the end of April, and it was read, along with others, and we just no longer have it. In this respect, the record is silent. People who attended the trial did, however, report that the Queen defended herself ably. She was witty and cool, 
and it made no difference whatsoever. When the sentence was pronounced, Queen Anne rose from her chair, curtsied, and was escorted back to her rooms by Sir and Lady Kingston and Lady Elizabeth Boleyn. When they got there, she was attended by, quote, two ladies which came in with her at the first, end quote. It's not very likely that one of these, quote, young ladies was Lady Shelton, who would have been considered pretty old at 53, and who was not included in the young ladies described as serving Anne immediately after her arrest. People who wrote about Queen Anne's execution on the 19th of May said she had, quote, four young ladies, end quote, with her to the end. But no one bothered to write down their names, so we don't know who they were. But Lady Shelton was definitely not one of them. She had been dismissed of her grim duty a few days before, and was not at the tower that morning. Things returned to a relative, although probably weird, status quo for the Sheltons after the execution. The Sheltons were back in charge of the king's daughter's household, but now it was the Lady Elizabeth who had been demoted from princess to bastard. During the summer of 1536, they were living in Hunston, and Elizabeth's governess was complaining that Sir John was basically still acting and treating the little girl like a princess, letting her eat at, quote, the board of estate, end quote which is probably what most three-year-olds who've been told they're a princess want to do. It may also have been what the king wanted the Sheltons to do. Between 1536 and 1541, Henry was hard at work, dissolving the many Catholic monasteries and convents of his kingdom, and either reassigning the wealth that was associated with them, or putting it directly into the royal treasury. In November of 1538, he granted the Sheltons the site of a dissolved Benedictine convent at Carrow, which was near Norwich, and this estate became the Shelton family seat. Sir John Shelton died in 1539 at the age of 62, and is buried in St. Mary's Church, Norfolk, which is about 30 miles from Carrow. Local legend holds that Sir John once hid the Princess Elizabeth in the same church's tower when she was under threat during the reign of Mary Tudor. Lady Anne Boleyn Shelton died in 1556 at the age of 73. Her final resting place is unclear, but she may also be buried in St. Mary's Church along with her husband. The church, which was begun by an ancestor of the Shelton family in the mid-1400s, still has some of the stained glass windows from the 15th and 16th centuries. In the eastern window, a man and woman are kneeling in prayer and facing one another. They are Sir John Shelton and his wife Lady Shelton, the other Anne Boleyn. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. From all of us here at Footnoting History, a special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. And until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.